More than one million Florida public school students are going to school through a screen, and that might cost them in the decades to come. The average student who has not had the old-fashioned learning that they would have expected is going to have 6 to 9% lower income if we don't do anything. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. How has the pandemic compounded educational inequities? Inequities are expected to have grown as a consequence of this pandemic. Also, at a public school in a gentrifying neighborhood, it's the pandemic versus the PTA. There's just this sort of looming feeling that that change is coming and it's not going to include the same people that school has always included. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. Every school day at Lake Park Elementary in Palm Beach County begins with a chant. It goes, Lake Park Lions, and then the kids repeat it. The school's mascot is the lion. Are responsible. Lake Park serves a majority Black area in northern Palm Beach County, and more than 9 out of 10 students at the school qualify for free or discounted meals. That means they're from lower-income households. Lake Park <laughs> Lions own our actions. This is Philip Preddy. He became principal just days before the pandemic took hold and closed school buildings last spring. Lake Park Lions achieve our goals. And the chant ends with Lake Park Lions shall respect. And then at the end, we all say Lake Park Lions. And then together, we all say roar. For responsible, ownership, achieve, respect, R-O-A-R. Get it? Roar. Lake Park Elementary is an outlier nationwide among schools serving low-income students. The school did not experience a COVID slide in its academic performance last spring when schools went online, according to standardized test results. We'll hear more about how the principal and teachers managed to keep students on track later on in the program. This Sunshine Economy is part of our reporting project, Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students. To find all of their reporting and to sign up for our newsletter, visit classofcovid.org. Now, before we get to the story behind Lake Park Elementary's success, we're going to tell you about a different school with a similar student population. This one is in Miami-Dade County. Jessica, you've spent months reporting on how the pandemic has affected students at Morningside K-8 Academy unequally. Tell us about it. Morningside is a public school near the Little Haiti neighborhood in Miami. Its crown jewel is the beloved dual language magnet program. Kids pick from Haitian Creole, Spanish, or French. I talked to almost two dozen people, parents, students, teachers, other staff, the principal, and everyone just gushed about how beautiful the school is, how warm it is, how much the kids love each other, and how dedicated and talented the teachers are. This is Chase Simmering, who's been the PTSA president for the last couple of years. In some ways, like, I don't want our school to change that much. Like, I, I love the way that it is, but the school needs more resources for sure. The school does need resources. 90% of the students qualify for free or discounted meals. And why is she worried about the school changing? Because the neighborhood is changing and gentrifying all around it. The pandemic has starkly exposed the economic and racial fault lines at the school and the community that surrounds it. 
The Morningside PTSA has worked really hard over the last several years to bring in resources and opportunities that benefit all kids there. Like they cover buses for field trips and got grants to plant gardens on campus and brought in a poetry enrichment program. But it's easier when what's best for the community and what's best for your own kid are the same. And in some ways, the pandemic has pitted those priorities against each other. In a covered entryway outside Morningside K-8 Academy, four little kids are running in circles around each other and around me. Are you guys playing a game? Ring around the rosy, one of them tells me. The irony didn't occur to me right away. The dark nursery rhyme was inspired by the Great Plague of the 1600s. It's mid-June 2020, a few months into the plague of our generation. Morningside, like all public schools in Florida, has been closed since March. The little ones belong to Sunshine. We're not using her last name to protect her privacy. She's got an incoming kindergartner, first grader, and fourth grader. And the baby still in <laughs> The baby in her mom's arms, wearing a white dress, pink ballet slippers, and a pacifier. The blue surgical masks covering the other kids' faces make them look just tiny. Wow. What do you guys think of your school? Do you like it? Yeah? Why do you like your school? Because I get to learn. What do you get to yes. learn? Math. Math? Yeah. Is that your favorite subject? Yeah. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a police officer. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sunshine jokes, she'll have to be careful. <laughs> Sunshine speaks a little English. I don't speak any Haitian Creole, but a school employee who does helps us. Sunshine says her husband has just been called back to work after being out for two months. And since Morningside closed, her kids have been going to school from home. I have them to their homework online. Sometimes I have a difficult, but I contact the, those teachers. They help me. Man. And it costs more to have her kids at home. So we spend more money, buy the food, some stuff like that. Sunshine is here at Morningside this day to pick up some groceries and a Publix gift card. Hers is one of more than 100 families at the school that the Parent-Teacher-Student Association has been able to help. Our families were already really suffering before this. Chase Simmering is the PTSA president. And this has just been like completely insurmountable addition of stress. The group had organized food drives around holidays in the past, and Simmering knew many parents at the school were struggling even before the pandemic wiped out wages and childcare. 90% of the school's families qualify for free or discounted meals. We had a family whose house burned down in the first two weeks of corona, COVID. And just last week, we had a student whose mother was killed in a car accident. So I think they're coming today for help. At the beginning of the pandemic, Simmering and her PTSA colleagues quickly decided to redirect money earmarked for field trips and dances that weren't going to happen anymore to help buy food for families. Students' families, of course, but also some of the part-time employees at the school whose spouses lost their jobs. Just by sharing the fundraiser on social media, the PTSA quickly raised nearly $20,000. We try to, in each food delivery, uh, sort of cover household staples like rice and beans, 
some cereal for kids, pasta with sauce. About 25 bucks worth of these basic items. Apples. We, we always try to include some kind of fun snack for the kids. Like I think this time we got animal crackers. Plus a $150 Publix gift card for each family. The PTSA officers have also made trips down to Homestead to pick up produce and dairy and deliver it to families' homes. The group has relied on teachers, social workers, and other staff at the school to identify the families in the most urgent need, sometimes emergent need. We had a family who wrote to the school asking, because the district's been giving laptops out, and they asked for one and said that they had had to sell their personal laptop to pay for food for the week. So for things like that, where it's like they literally have no food in the house, We'll skip the gift card and just buy like a month's worth of groceries so they don't have to risk going out and, you know, if a lot of the families don't have cars. So are they all coming here, Miss Blanchard? Mm-hmm. Are they all going to come here? Yeah. Okay. Everyone's called you Miss Blanchard, so I don't know your first name. Edith. <laughs> Is it E-D-I-D? Edith Blanchard, Community Involvement Specialist at Morningside K-8 Academy, a public school near Little Haiti in Miami. Her mask says... I'm smiling underneath. I'm always smile. I'm always smile. That's my duty because I deal with children every day. Blanchard was born in Haiti, and she speaks the language. So she's able to communicate with the school's large population of Haitian families. My job is a bridge between the school and the children's home. She often visits students in their homes. So she's seen firsthand the challenges some of them are facing. Poverty, hunger. When the school closes... The first thing that come to my mind is the parents and the children. I think about myself as a mother, how difficult it can be for the kid to wake up, mommy, I'm hungry, and then yet nothing to, nothing on the table is pull break your heart. Blanchard has worked at Morningside for two decades, and she's noticed the neighborhood change over that time. The median asking price of homes and condominiums in the zip code where Morningside is located has nearly tripled in the last 10 years, from just over 200000 to almost 600000 You could see the change. Blanchard points to a house across the street from the school. Now this one was a one-story house, nice too. I don't know whether people are living there yet or not. I don't know. So that's new? Yes, that's new. Morningside is a neighborhood school. And it's a school of choice. Some kids attend because they live nearby, and others come from all over the county for the dual language magnet program. Students choose Spanish, French, or Haitian Creole. Morningside is the only Haitian Creole magnet in Miami-Dade, and one of just seven public schools in the county that offers a course in the language. The school's black majority has been shrinking. It went from about 66% five years ago to 60% now. State data show the Latino population is growing rapidly. As we say, mommy's a potluck, is that the right word? Potluck? Yeah, different type of people. Oh yeah, like a melting pot. Oh, that's a melting pot, yes. yeah, that's what I say, it's a melting pot. Different names, different last names, but it's always our children. Different last names, but always our children. Rosina arrives to pick up the donated groceries and gift card for her family a little later on this hot afternoon last June. We're not using her last name to protect her privacy. It means a lot to me. Her daughter is going into fourth grade at Morningside K-8 Academy. My husband lost his job 
only me do part time, it's very tough. But God help us, we still alive. So. Rosina says her husband worked at a rental car company at the airport. When travel slowed down, he was let go. At this point, she's supporting her family with just her part-time job, preparing food for residents of a nursing home. Those people don't have nowhere to go, so we have to stay. That's why we, we sacrifice us to help them because they cannot help themselves. The groceries provided by the school PTSA will help Rosina feed her family, too. Okay, thank you. <laughs> a woman pulls up in a car and shouts to us. I can't hear exactly what she's saying, but everyone here knows she's asking if she can have some of the food. The PTSA president, Chase Simmering, says this happens every time the group holds a food pickup. Blanchard goes over to talk to her. She said, are we giving a donation? I said, no. I asked her, do you have any kids here at Morningside? And she said, no, anything, because I don't have nothing. Those are the things that bleed your heart. I know for a fact, if PTSA can give the world, they will give the world. But unfortunately, we don't have that kind of funds to to actually make everybody happy. We cannot make everyone happy. A PTSA, Parent-Teacher-Student Association, sometimes called a PTA or PTO, is often the main fundraising arm of a school. It's the parents who have time. They tend to have resources, too, or at least access to resources. They not only raise money, but they also decide how it's spent. They have power. And at Morningside, which is 90% poor and 60% Black, the PTSA officers are middle or upper income, and none of them are Black. My name is Chase Simmering, and I run the PTSA at Morningside. I'm Rebel Owens. I have two daughters. Two boys. My name is Diana Dalton. Olga Ramos, I have one son. Hi, my name is Lizani. I walked through the gates, and I immediately fell in love. Courtyards, fresh air, the kids, when they're traveling to and from classes, lunch, they're out in the sunshine. My son went into kindergarten, and he didn't know how to read. My daughter started kindergarten last year without any interest in reading, no matter how much we all love reading in this house. She had no interest. By the time he was finished, he was reading at like the 99th percentile for the state of Florida. And within a few months was starting to read chapter books. I didn't do that. (laughs) That was his kindergarten teacher. You can hear how much they love this school. Remember that, because in the months ahead, some painful changes are coming. I believe it used to be a monastery. Do you know how old this building is? Chase Simmering, the PTSA president, shows me around the outdoor parts of the Morningside campus, murals and mango trees. This is last year. <laughs> this is just insane. Yeah. It's like this hidden gem. Like, you don't know from outside, like, what it's really like in here. The PTSA's presence is everywhere. This was a Haitian medicine garden that we had done during Florida Native Garden of Endangered Plants, which we got a grant for. All those picnic tables donated. Filled all these signs identifying the plants and what species they attract. Decided to write letters, and, and the district agreed to put in a playground for us. The playground was just replaced a few months ago. The old one was in such bad shape, it was too dangerous to use. During a typical school year, the Morningside K-8 Academy, PTSA, would buy school uniforms and sell them to parents at a small markup. It's their big fundraiser, and it brings in about $50,000. 
basically for whatever the school needs, even stuff you would expect to be there already. We found out that middle school bathrooms did not have small trash containers for young women who were starting their menstrual cycles to be able to dispose of their sanitary napkins. The vice president, Olga Ramos. Running down to Home Goods and just buying one for each middle school bathroom is something that we did. The moms on the PTSA are better off financially than most families at Morningside, but they're not fabulously wealthy. They work, some of them full time, and they had to juggle their finances to help out with a fundraiser that fed some of the poorest families at the school. We have to pay out of pocket and then get reimbursed. Simmering again. It's been really like this patchwork teamwork effort where one person knows that out of this week's paycheck, they can front, you know, $300 and the other will cover 500. And we have had to be really open with each other in a way that is not stuff we would normally talk with each other about and not be embarrassed to say like, you know, I can't afford to cover any of these public's cards this week. Some of the PTSA moms have older kids who've been at the school for years. And even before COVID-19, they were stretched thin, burned out. Our PTSA is dangerously close to disappearing. We've been trying all year to get more people involved, and there's nobody stepping up to replace us. So I feel like if we've left and walked away, like it's the PTSA is going to fall apart. And that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Simmering and her fellow officers have long been frustrated that while the community around Morningside has gotten wealthier, the school is still struggling for resources. Then the COVID-19 fundraiser happened. When the pandemic first hit, the Morningside PTSA planned to redirect about $2,500 from its regular budget to help feed students and their families who were struggling. I decided to share that we were doing that on Nextdoor, and right away, one person donated $1,000, which blew me away. And then two more people donated like another couple hundred dollars. And I shared it on my Instagram and Facebook, and I watched like, I think within two days, it went over $5,000, not including that initial donation. And pretty quickly, that five or 6000 became 20000 We have never raised anything like that kind of money before in the past. Liz Zaney is the PTSA's recording secretary. I have neighbors coming around to my house with cash to give me. The PTSA was grateful, of course, but also surprised. And that's partly because a lot of people in the community who contributed to the fundraiser seemed to take no interest in the school before this. Many of the affluent neighbors send their kids to a nearby private school where tuition costs up to $40,000 a year. It just saddened me that there's a huge section of our community that have never walked through the gates of their own local public school. I mean, I'm not from here, obviously, you can tell I'm from England. But that is mind-blowing to me, that why would you not want to send your child to their local school? The PTSA moms have been asking this question, but they know the answer. They all have stories about trying to convince other white parents to send their kids to Morningside and being met with coded language, euphemisms to disguise classism and racism. They worry about having peer relationships where you could invite somebody over to your house. Diana Dalton, treasurer. The income disparity is so great, they don't see how they would bridge those worlds. 
random comments from people. Rebel Owens is the immediate past president. You know, I don't really see my child identified there. You know, they'll be the only one. And I, I mean, my kids are biracial, so, you know, we kind of straddle both sides. They sort of treat us like we're going there to make a statement. And like, we care about our kids' education as much as any other parent. And it's been fantastic. Where Edith Blanchard, the community involvement specialist at Morningside, sees a melting pot. As we say, mommy's a potluck. The parents the PTSA members were trying to recruit saw not enough whiteness. We've had some people say things like, oh, well, it's just, it's not very diverse. Then we were like, do you mean that it's not white enough? <laughs> because that's exactly what they were saying. They kind of smiled and blushed and were like, well, you know, her kid might feel like an outsider. And, and I was like, I mean, that's kind of how minorities have always felt. Sometimes Simmering will go on Nextdoor, a social networking site for neighbors, and she'll see people asking about where to send their kids. If there's a thread on there about like, we're thinking of starting a homeschool co-op because there's just no good options. I'll just shamelessly chime in and be like, there's a great option, you know, and it's right here. And it's funny, like people will say, like, can we donate? Can we do something? But like, they're not considering sending their own kids there, but they want to do something to make themselves feel better. (laughs) It's not just PTSA fundraisers at stake when neighbors will send donations, but not kids to the school. Morningside is under enrolled. It's only at about 70 percent capacity. While there are other schools in the county that are overcrowded, the more students that come into a school, the more money that comes with them. And more money can be a blessing and a threat. There's just this sort of looming feeling that that change is coming and it's not going to include the same people that school has always included. Um, And that's really hard to grapple with. As the pandemic wears on, parents at Morningside K-8 Academy have to make some impossible choices about their children's education, including the parents who lead the school's PTSA. Well, I don't even know if there is one anymore. We'll be back with this Class of COVID-19 edition of the Sunshine Economy. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. We're back with this special class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy. Visit classofcovid.org. There are nearly 90,000 fewer students in Florida's public schools than expected this year. Now, there are a lot of explanations for why and still some questions as well. But one thing we do know, COVID-19 is forcing parents to make impossible choices about their children's education. And parents with more money typically have more choices. This crisis has made worse the economic and racial disparities that already exist in our education system. We've been reporting on how these disparities are affecting students and parents at Morningside K-8 Academy, a public school near Little Haiti with a dual language magnet program. Most of the families at the school are poor, and the Parent Teacher Student Association has been trying to help them survive the pandemic through food donations. But the PTSA is facing its own existential threat. Over summer, everything changed for a lot of people. Liz Zaney is the Morningside PTSA's recording secretary. We pick up our story in late fall 2020. The numbers of new coronavirus cases have just started coming down from the summer surge. Public schools in South Florida are still closed, but 
they won't be for long. So are you still a part of the PTSA? Well, I don't even know if there is one anymore. There's only me and Diana left now. Of the five moms who were running the PTSA at Morningside, only Zany and Diana Dalton, the treasurer, remain. Rebel Owens, a past president of the PTSA. Courtyards, fresh air. Her youngest son finished fifth grade, and she had never planned on keeping him at Morningside for middle school. So they moved on. And the vice president, Olga Ramos. We found out that middle school bathrooms did not have small trash containers. Her son finished first grade through a screen. Ramos said she saw him lose interest and fall behind. She couldn't risk him continuing to suffer academically at home. And it was too hard with her and her husband's jobs. Having two people working full time and a child doing remote learning in a 1,400 square foot 1940s bungalow is in and of itself a certain nightmare. So the family moved. And Ramos didn't feel comfortable with the Miami-Dade County Public Schools plan for reopening. So she put her son in a private school instead were the tuitions around $8,000 a year. I do feel like I made the right decision because I am seeing him much more engaged and just happier, right, than what was happening at the end of last year. Ramos is one of likely tens of thousands of parents who pulled their kids out of Florida public schools since the start of the pandemic, transferred them to private, virtual, or homeschool. Since before COVID-19, Morningside has lost more than 11% of its student body. My decision was really selfish, right? So it was only about what is best for my child and my family. I did not take into consideration, broadly speaking, you know, what it means for public schools if, you know, children leave, et cetera, et cetera. And Chase Simmering the president of the PTSA. It's like this hidden gem. Her family moved too. They wanted more space, especially since she and her husband have worked from home a lot throughout the pandemic. And now they're homeschooling kids. Do you like it better than what you were doing in the spring, looking at the computer? Oh yeah, that was really hard. I mean, my eyes hurt. (laughs) Isla is in second grade and her sister Paloma in fifth. They were zombies by the end of seven hours in front of the computer. Simmering and one of her daughters have some underlying health issues, so going back in person isn't an option. She found a homeschool curriculum that's mostly hands-on, project-based learning and hardly any work on the computer. We found out that by us not coming back and with nobody else stepping up, it means that the PTSA has to legally be dissolved. My first instinct was to just stay involved. But her husband worried she was taking on too much. Like even imagining, I was trying to like come up with ways I could secretly doing it, do it without my husband knowing like I was cheating or something, which feels ridiculous. So at this point, Simmering's kids don't go to Morningside anymore, but she decided to stay on as PTSA president as long as she was needed to make sure it would survive. And she's worried it won't. It's totally heartbreaking when I try to imagine the impact this is going to have on the school because... I feel like it was in a really pivotal place of growth. You know, this this is going to cripple it. I don't I don't know how it's going to come back. Liz Zaney is still involved, but she didn't feel like she had the time to take on the presidency. I kind of had some sleepless nights thinking about it, worrying about the school. But then I've kind of decided that just for my own mental health, I just need to take a step back. 
and realize that schools are very fluid they're very it's not a stationary thing schools change students come and go people graduate etc etc and it's like it it's, it's, it's still going to be there it's been there for all these years without us and it's going to be there for all these years you know in the future for the moms who chose to take their kids out of the school an unwitting consequence of their decision at least for now during the pandemic the fewer students in school the less exposure the kids who are still there have to COVID-19. Morningside has reported just a handful of cases in recent weeks, following several months without any at all. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Jessica Bakeman is my co-host and WLRN's education reporter, also the editor of Class of COVID-19. That's our reporting project, looking at how the pandemic has affected the most vulnerable students in Florida. You can find the full series and sign up for our newsletter at classofcovid.org. Now, Jessica, your story left off with what happened in the fall. Have you caught up with these parents since? Yes. So Liz Zaney and Diana Dalton, the moms who stayed at Morningside, their kids are back in school in person, and they say they're doing well. There was about $4,000 left from that COVID-19 fundraiser where they used the money to buy food for those families. And the PTSA spent it on more food for them around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. The PTSA didn't have the time this year to do the uniform sale fundraiser. That's their big annual fundraiser that brings in about $50,000 and pays for whatever the school needs. Without that, the group has a lot less money now. And this is the most exciting update. Mm -hmm. Remember Edith Blanchard, the community involvement specialist who's been at Morningside for two decades? Different names, different last names, what is all with our children? She's the new PTSA president. Still to come, how students at one Palm Beach County school are doing despite the pandemic. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. For this special Class of COVID-19 episode of the Sunshine Economy, we're talking about educational inequity. A year ago, almost to the day, Philip Preddy went to work and was greeted with this. Elementary students lined the hallway. Preddy walked by them, giving high fives at the Palm Beach County Public School, where he had been assistant principal for the past decade. Preddy had just been promoted to a principal's job at a different school, Lake Park Elementary. I'm the last principal in Palm Beach County who, let's just say, went to a board meeting and was installed as a principal at the board meeting. Right after that, everybody was installed virtually. He was just two weeks into his new job when the building closed for the rest of the school year. There were no teachers, no students, no Lake Park Lions in the classrooms of Preddy's new school. And despite those challenges, students at the school are not only avoiding the so-called COVID slide, the academic regression that's happening because of all the ways the pandemic has disrupted school, they're actually making major strides. About a month ago, students took the district's annual diagnostic test to see where kids stand. My fourth and fifth graders outperformed the fourth and fifth graders from last year on the same test, which the test was taken right before the pandemic last year, um, outperformed them by 12.5% in fifth grade and 8.9% in fourth grade. At the onset of the pandemic last year, Friday the 13th, 
and we had no idea what was coming before us. When I realized that all my students at home were going to need a device, I started contacting other schools who who may have had a surplus of Chromebooks or even computers that I could reformat into a Chromebook so I could get them home at the onset. And so within the first month, uh, we were able to make sure that almost every single one of our students had a device at home. And not only that, my staff worked tirelessly to make sure that all of our students have Wi-Fi connectivity because with, with a computer without Wi-Fi while you're at home is nothing. And then on top of that, the teachers were still providing the instruction. They were still providing phonics instruction. They were still providing a full day's worth of instruction for our students. And then everybody else was trying to get those students connected. So we let the teachers focus on trying to get the students connected and engaged. And we were running um, some days, 94, 95% of our students last spring were engaged. 98% of them qualify for free and reduced lunch. So, so a lot of them do come from higher poverty households. About a third of our students qualify as ESOL, English speakers of other languages. Overall, uh, our school makeup is uh, about 87% of our students are Black, few percent are white, and the rest are Hispanic. There's a certain amount of lessons that we want them to pass, and we want them to pass it so that they can move to the next level. And um, when the students were achieving those goals, my teachers were actually buying things and either having them shipped straight from Amazon to the student's house as a reward, or they were buying things in bulk and then they were filling envelopes full of rewards for the students' um, ambition and their hard work. Some of them got them um, their certificates to get like an ice cream sundae at McDonald's or at Chick-fil-A special pencils, special headphones, because headphones, you know, was a big thing that a lot of them didn't have, Um, different art sets, or just things that the students specifically asked for that weren't very expensive. And honestly, the teachers were doing this out of their pocket. They were sending these things. And then there was the teachers who would drive around um, Lake Park, and, and they would leave these these incentives at the student's door and then call them from their car that there's something sitting at their door because early on you know we didn't come in within any distance of each other it really motivated the students and you could tell the love that they had for their kids school started in palm beach county on august 31st and at that time 28 percent of our students were in the building with the rest of them being at home And uh, it's just not the most conducive place to learning. But then on the other hand, I do understand the fear that some parents have. I truly understand it. And so uh, we have worked really hard to show our parents that we are keeping our campus safe. We are keeping our campus clean and we are keeping our students six feet apart. We're wearing our masks. So now we're about 74% of our students are in the building and about 26% of them are at home. And that's just from phone call after phone call with parents, just easing their mind and explaining to them the amount of learning loss the students are suffering being at home. At this point in the school year right now, my students have already exceeded their growth goal for my third, fourth, and fifth graders. And my kindergarten, first, and second, though, are struggling. There's so much direct instruction that's needed in kindergarten, first, and second. And when this happened, and we were trying to I hate to say it, but we were trying to build the plane as we were flying it. We were really trying to keep our students engaged in kindergarten, first and second, but it is a whole different ballgame. If you try to engage a kindergartner in person, now imagine trying to engage them through a Google Meet session. I mean, it's just, it's very, very hard, but something that we've gotten really good at. I remind the teachers all the time, and this is just something that's been concreted during this pandemic, is that we have to make this six hours that they're in our care, the best six hours of their day. 
and show them that they're, they're cared about and they're, and that they're loved because we don't know what they're going through at home. We can't waver on our expectations, especially if the student's going through something, we still got to keep those expectations high because education is going to be the key to them being something big one day. That's Philip Preddy. He's principal at Lake Park Elementary School in Palm Beach County. His school is among the 9% of low-income elementary schools nationwide that did not see a COVID slide in student performance last spring, despite going all online. Kristen Huff is the Vice President of Assessment and Research at Curriculum Associates, the company behind the iReady reading and math program used by many South Florida public schools. We found this set of distinguished schools who were able to do this despite the uh, harrowing environment last spring. The notions of what Principal Preddy has said about going above and beyond to uh, eliminate technical barriers, a relentless commitment to reaching every single family, celebrating learning. It is this culture that really helps schools maintain this learning during a crisis such as COVID. Still ahead, counting up the cost of the lost learning because of the pandemic. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. This is a special Sunshine Economy. It's part of our class of COVID-19 reporting project, examining the education crisis for Florida's most vulnerable children. You can see all the reporting at classofcovid.org. The cost of going to school online and not in the classroom may show up in the economy in the years and decades to come. For students opting to go to school through a screen, they may see lower income for years when they enter the workforce. Compounded by the tens of millions of students attending virtual classes, that may have an enormous cost on the American economy for more than a generation. There's actually history that supports this, not caused by a pandemic, though. In Germany in the 1960s, two school years were shortened to bring the country into a standardized school calendar. The shorter years meant students missed about three quarters of a year's worth of learning. Those students earned an average of 5% less during their working years. Eric Hanushek predicts the pandemic could cost students now even more. The average student who has not had the old-fashioned learning that they would have expected is going to have 6 to 9% lower income if we don't do anything. Hanushek is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Are you saying that even students who were in virtual school last spring, they didn't miss a day of school, even they run the risk of losing up to 9% of their income over a lifetime? That's absolutely true. The impact of this could be huge. While South Florida school buildings have been open for students to return to the classroom since October, hundreds of thousands of students remain going to school by logging on, and thousands more students aren't going to school at all. This is a real cost to these students. Their learning is less, and that's going to trail them throughout their entire lifetime. And what this learning loss that we suffered and continue to suffer has meant is that the skills of the U.S. population will be less into the future, which will have an impact on lower economic growth. 
Hanushek figures the lost learning will mean slower economic growth of about 4% over what's left this century. Now, this is about 26 to 30 trillion dollars less in today's dollars. Consider that the U.S. economy is expected to be about $21 trillion this year. Hanushek's estimate is as if more than a year's worth of the entire economy will be lost with students not in the classroom. Inequities are expected to have grown as a consequence of this pandemic. This is Emma Garcia. She's an education economist with the Economic Policy Institute. When we hear all these big numbers and long-term projections and estimates of individual and collective uh, costs, we have to understand that that's the cost of not acting. Garcia and Hanushek are both economists. They work for think tanks that tend to come from different points of view. The Hoover Institution is known as a conservative policy research organization, while the Economic Policy Institute is seen as leaning left. But the two economists agree on solutions to the potential enormous economic cost of the lost learning, including focusing on personalized instruction for students, matching the best teachers with the most needy students, and continuing to give assessment tests. Kids have the ability to learn many things, but they do it in very different manners. Plus, if you compound that to what his experience during the pandemic may have been relative to the experiences of some of his peers in the school, the flexible learning approaches is a component of a quality education, intensive education. But there are others that have to do with high-quality instruction, reducing class sizes, or having access to sufficient and highly credentialed teachers, or to having access to other supports in the schools, etc. Tailoring the instruction to individual students, as Emma talked about, is really important. That's been made more important by the pandemic because the variations in starting points of kids in a normal classroom has expanded almost certainly because of the pandemic. But secondly, what we know is that in any situation, whether it's with remote learning or technology and so forth, the teacher is an extraordinarily important element. There's a large variation in the effectiveness of different teachers, both in-class presentations and, we think, in remote learning. Getting highly effective teachers to deal particularly with those that have been harmed the most is the number one issue. Florida has used uh, assessment tests to assess students, but also teacher effectiveness. Florida public schools, even during this pandemic learning year, are going forward with annual state exams. Eric, how should these be used? I think that it's very important to keep going with those exams. I don't think that there should be any use of these exams for personnel actions, judging teachers, and so forth. But we do need that information because that gives us guidance on where the biggest problems are and at the individual student level, who needs the most help. Emma, how about using standardized tests as Florida still plans on doing? Those assessments are still going to be useful for allowing us to know some aspects of how kids are and where they are. However, 
something that I would strongly recommend has to do with expanding the assessments that we are doing. So not just focusing on kids' performance on some subjects in math, reading, and some limited subjects, which are very useful, but also on diagnosing kids' needs, where they are, what they need. That, to me, includes the academics, but that also includes some well-being dimensions, some socio-emotional dimensions that we will have to take into account as part of all these skills kids develop when they are in schools, but also as part of what will help some of them recover from the consequences of the pandemic. One other um, policy change that the Florida legislature is considering that I'd love to get your take on, they're talking about uh, a bill that would allow parents to basically choose to have their kids repeat this school year. So kindergarten through eighth grade students would just stay back and repeat the same year. Right now, that's something that only school officials can do, but the legislature is talking about giving parents that choice. What do you think about that, Emma? The research on grave repetition is also uh, very clear on the consequences of grave repetition. Sometimes you are giving students more time to acquire some concepts, some skills that they couldn't get in the or acquired in, in the given time. But that is a costly intervention for, for these states. Grave repetition also has consequences for the development, for the mm-hmm. socialization of the students. It's not a um, remedy I would recommend as something that is the best. I would rather think of designing menus of support, expanding the learning time for those students, preventing repetition in the sense that especially for the students in in secondary school if possible because it's highly correlated with dropping out. That was Emma Garcia with the Economic Policy Institute and Eric Hanushek with the Hoover Institution of Stanford University, both education economists. Still to come, bringing back education into the public health discussion. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. We're back with this special class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy. Most of the public conversation about schools during the pandemic has centered around public health, not public education. And Emma Garcia of the Economic Policy Institute and Eric Hanushek with the Hoover Institution see an opportunity to turn the talk from concerns about contagiousness to academics. I think we have to be moving toward making our schools better than they were in 2019. Because if we just get back to 2019, which seems to be the goal that many have, we're going to have this generation that has been significantly harmed. So we have to make sure that our best instructors are in front of the majority of students, and in particular, the most disadvantaged students. I agree that we need to get past on the conversation that should be just in hands of public health experts. In terms of the opportunity that we have in front of us, that if we are able to design the right interventions, if we were able to allocate those to the students who need them most, 
and we were able to keep those in place for a lot longer, we could be actually doing ourselves a great favor and we could be actually finding a way of addressing some of the pre-existing inequities and the ones that the pandemic may have exacerbated. I don't think that over the next couple of years that money is the most serious problem. We What we found in lots of places is actually the economy of various states has done better than would have been expected. And so there haven't been this dire loss of revenues across states. And the federal government is talking a a fairly substantial additional infusion of funds into schools and states. And so I don't think it's money. What we have to be thinking about is how can we come out of this improving the schools? That's the only hope. That was Eric Hanischak with the Hoover Institution and Emma Garcia with the Economic Policy Institute. You can catch all of our Class of COVID-19 coverage at classofcovid.org. Also search for WLRN Presents on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. Sammy Mack helped with editing this hour, engineering from Peter Meritz. Joe Johnson is our technical director and Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Jessica Bakeman. And I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.